Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab. My name is Goose, and this is the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And that is a mouthful, but what a great thing to get in your mouth. Now, what we are talking about today, I'm joined by uh, a perennial guest. Perennial, maybe that's not the right word. Serial guest, Terry Ryder. He is, if you've been listening to the podcast, you will have heard him on a couple of previous episodes. He is a wealth of knowledge. He's a great Australian property researcher. Uh, somebody called him the Oracle of Information, which I think is uh, quite funny. But in the meantime, what we're actually covering in this episode is going to be super impactful for anyone who has even a vague interest in, in real estate investing. So we talked about regionals versus capitals and why and how regionals outperform capital cities, which is contentious but true. Um, we talked about the major trends that are shaping Australian real estate. So we spoke about everything from the exodus to affordability, the exodus to lifestyle and infrastructure. We speak about budget, quantitative easing and the impact of, of um, uh, the current fiscal policy on the property environment. We talked about very specifically, we talked about actual hotspots, you know, suburbs that are prime for growth right now that you can benefit from if you go and do that. We spoke about so much stuff, a lot of actionable advice in this episode, loads of good gold nuggets. I know you're going to get a lot out of it. So without any further ado, we're going to get stuck into it. But for first, make sure you hit subscribe, make sure you, whatever platform you're on, interact with this, share it with someone, subscribe, that'd be amazing. Let somebody else know about this episode because this could help them too. But without any further ado, I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. I'm joined yet again by serial guest, maybe serial pest, not sure. Terry Ryder from hotspotting.com.au.com or .au. What's the, what's the go, Terry? .com.au and, and thank you for that. Um, very respectful introduction. I feel special. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know Terry, he's been one of Australia's most prominent real estate commentators for the last 35 years. He's been in every publication, pretty much, I'm just going to say every publication in the country just about. He's he's the go-to guy for governments, local governments who want to do analysis on their own economic uh, environment to, to work out all that kind of stuff. So he's a, he's a wealth of knowledge. He is, is a great research, researcher and also a really good guide for us as a business. And we really appreciate working with Terry. So that's a little bit of who Terry is. But Terry, have you got anything to add to that? Do you want to pump yourself up a little bit more? Did I do a good uh, enough job there? Somebody introduced me the other day as the Oracle of Information. Um, and I'm not quite sure what that means, but it sounded pretty impressive. <laughs> it's like the it's like the Warren Buffett of Warren Buffett of property research. I think that's what they're trying to say, like the Oracle of Omaha, but the Oracle of you know, the Oracle the Oracle of, of research, property research. So there you go. Well, all right, cool. So Terry, it's been a pretty eventful year this year, particularly this last little quarter. Now, last we've this is the third time you've been on the Investor Lab podcast, and we sort of get we're getting into a bit of a rhythm here. And it's been I think it's been been roughly about three months since we since we last did an episode on here. And it's been a pretty eventful three months, not least yeah. of which, not least of which because of you know, uh, you know, last time we spoke, there was still talk about the the fiscal cliff. The episode we did was called uh, "The Fiscal Cliff Is a Lie," and that yep. proved that was proven to be true. And uh, and now we've got all the banks; they're backpedaling on their on their you know negative perspectives. All the economists that have been out there saying that the world is going to end, and now saying, "Oh, actually, things aren't that bad, and everything's pretty good." So everything we sort of spoke about last time we caught up rang quite true. But what's happened since then has been there's been budget announcements, and all kinds of really interesting things. And so I want to dig into a few topics today. And and as as we both know, when we catch up, that we tend to, tend, to, tend to go all over the place and go a little tangential. But I want to try and hit on some key topics. Regionals versus capitals, the major trends that are shaping Australian real estate. And well, actually, let's just try and stick with two. Let's see if we can do those and see how we go. What do you think? Okay, I'm ready. All right, great. So... Let's start with regionals versus capitals, right? Because I think there's a very interesting story there. Now, now, actually, well, we're going to go around in a few different directions because they're all tied together. But I just read some recent um, data from CoreLogic, which said that um, through through the COVID period from March 2020 to October 2020, values across the combined regional areas increased by 1.7%. 
while the combined capitals fell by 2.3%. And then later in the article, it says, it is noteworthy that regional Australia has previously outperformed capital city markets based on cyclical patterns. Capital city markets generally have higher volatility, meaning returns are higher during upswings and declines are deeper during downswings. What are your thoughts on, on all of that? Well, I guess my reaction is at last, at last a, a major source, that a major credible source that media thinks is credible anyway, has actually said what we've been saying for so many years, uh, which we know to be true and which you know to be true. Um, look, it's been there in the data and in the experience of property investors and property professionals for quite a few years that regions have actually been outperforming the capitals. And I think it is true that the capital city markets are more volatile. What we saw with uh, Sydney and Melbourne, they both had these very big booms from 2013 to 2017, but then they had quite a big correction. They didn't lose all the gains, of course, that they'd made over five years, but they lost a substantial proportion of it. So by the time you average out all that volatility, what we find is that for, say, the biggest cities, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, um, they've actually been outperformed over the past five years in terms of price growth in the last five years. So there's a very long list of regional centres in New South Wales that have had more growth in their prices in the last five years than Sydney has, despite Sydney's big boom for those five years. So, so can, 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 I, can I ask then, from your perspective as someone who does a lot of research on this, one thought that I've had around this, this analysis, it's easy to go, well, there's five capital cities, so we can look at the averages across those, well, there's more than five capital cities, you get my point, right? And, but there's, there's, there's thousands of regional suburbs. So when we look at the averages across those regional suburbs, it's natural to think that that, that sometimes markets will be going up and sometimes they'll be going flat. But if we, if we look at that on, on an individual basis, is it reasonable to say that a regional centre will outperform uh, a major capital? Or is it only when we go, okay, well, let's take 50 different regional centres and compare them together and they all kind of average out? You know, because yeah. the, the risk I think that a lot of people, the, sorry, the risk I think that a lot of people have in their mind is that they're, is that there's gonna, they might get a spike, but then heaps a much flatter trajectory after that. Look, what you're referring to is the perils of generalisation. And economists do it, the media does it, um, to a large extent, organisations like CoreLogic do it as well. They produce a single figure for Sydney, they'll, they'll produce a single growth figure for regional New South Wales. And it's incredibly misleading, not very helpful at all to anybody. You've got to look at the individual locations because... If you're talking about how much is region, how much of price has grown in regional New South Wales or regional Victoria, every hit town, um, drought-affected location, everything's thrown into that pot and produces one figure. It doesn't really give you uh, a useful picture. It's a misleading picture. What we want is how much is Bendigo grown by? How much is Albury Wodonga grown by? What about Warrnambool? You know, the major centres, we want to look at those individually and the figures for them because that's when it starts to become illuminating. And that's when you start to realise that out there there's a whole host of significant regional towns and cities which have been showing outstanding growth for the last three to five years and doing better than their respective capital cities. The generalised figures are rubbish. We should ignore them. We've got to drill down into the individual locations to get something that's meaningful and helpful that tells real estate consumers where should we be focusing our dollar. Okay, so what you're saying then is if we just we'll just pick a state, for example, just to use it as an example. If we looked at, say, New South Wales, what we can deduce from that is that some major regional centres, so maybe we could we could lump Newcastle, Coffs Harbour, or got maybe a few different places in there. Some of those are outperforming quite dramatically yeah. the capitals, whereas some other more minor centres might be underperforming. Yeah, that's right. And, we, and as investors, we're not interested in those places anyway because, you know, as, as good advisors and researchers, we're, we're going to be telling people you should not be investing in one-horse towns. You should not be investing in a country town where the whole economy is based on agriculture or based on mining or based on tourism. You want to be in a, a, a regional centre of substance with a diverse economy, different strands, it's growing. So um, we don't want to be focusing any attention on uh, the small towns because they are risky places to be, except 
on rare occasions when something special has happened, an example I'll throw at you is the town of Parks in Western uh, New South Wales. We've talked about it before. Um, it's, it's a regional centre for an agricultural community. It's also got the famous dish, but it's becoming a transport hub and it's been very pivotal in the new inland rail link, which is a $9 billion piece of infrastructure. And Parks is just going to another level because of that. So it's worth investors considering a place like that, which otherwise we wouldn't recommend. Mm. But beyond that, we need to be focusing on the bigger sense. Let me give you some figures that illustrate the point we're making very graphically. Yeah, yeah please do. Yeah, and, and, and I've got I've got a, a, a very nice graphic here. It comes from a guy I know very well called Simon Presley from Propertyology. I think he's the best real estate analyst in Australia. And I, I love his work. And we talk a lot. We agree on most things. And this graphic shows us that in the last five years, uh, taking all the ups and downs into account, Sydney prices overall have grown 22% in five years. Uh, Byron Bay's grown 57%, so more than double what Sydney's done. Uh, Ballin has grown 44%, Coffs Harbour 42%, Port Macquarie 39%, Newcastle 35%, Wollongong 35%. Um, yeah, so those are Wagga Wagga's uh, slightly less than Sydney, but all of those places, Byron Bay, Coffs Harbour, Wollongong, Newcastle, he could have included others, but those are the main centres. They've all, they've all grown considerably more than Sydney in the past five years. Okay. There was, there's a common thread between all of those, except Wagga Wagga, which you said performed less well than Sydney. So all of the others are coastal. Yep. In, in that instant, they are. But if we look at, for example, the Victorian examples where um, – significant regional centres have done as well as, or in some cases better than Melbourne. We're talking about places like Ballarat and Bendigo and Shepparton and a rising market in Warrnambool. And um, some of those are coastal, but many of them are inland. So I don't think you can draw too many conclusions. I think if if they also, um, just a moment, there's, there's other parts of that list um, for New South Wales, Griffith, which is very inland, 38% versus Sydney's 22%. And they Orange, five, are, they, are they five-year averages that you're reading out? Five-year growth, yeah. Orange has grown almost 40% compared to Sydney's 22 um, So some of those inland regions have done very well as well. Okay, so I want to ask an obvious question then. If, if all of these regional centres historically and traditionally and statistically outperform the capitals why is the median price in sydney and you know over a million dollars and why is the median price in melbourne about about a million dollars why is it that that if all essentially all property you know if we go back a hundred odd years was probably fairly similarly priced to a degree why is it then that that those centers are now so much worth so much more on a median value why why do you think that is you don't i'm not you don't have to you know pin pin your professional reputation on this but i'm interested in your opinion well i think it's because the phenomenon that we're dealing with which has led these uh regional centers to outperform the capital city is just quite a recent one because what we know to be true is that for decades and decades the drift was to the big centres from the regional areas. And it was a great concern to governments and others that the uh, the regional areas were losing population. Everyone was moving to the big cities. But now we're seeing that trend reverse. We're now actually seeing what we call the exodus to affordable lifestyle for definable reasons. And it hasn't been, contrary to what um, the media has been portraying, it hasn't been a product of COVID-19. It's been underway for a number of years It's um, for um reasons of affordability, reasons of lifestyle, but particularly the ability that technology has provided for people to work remotely. Mm. So the trend that's uh, resulting in these numbers we're giving to people today is actually a relatively recent thing. It's been in the last three to five years that it's become a very strong trend. Okay. So, yeah, because a lot of people think that it's just because of COVID because they're starting to see the effects of it and starting to starting no. to expect that. No. No? Not at all? It's not no. As I say, the trend was already underway. Um, pe- people have been moving out to places like, firstly, out of Melbourne to Geelong, then to Ballarat, then to Bendigo, and then further afield. Um, that that was underway long before we had even heard of COVID nineteen. So we've seen 
markets like those I've just mentioned, they've had fantastic growth for the last three or four years because of this trend. What um, COVID has done is turned what was a, a steady drift into a stampede. Um, that's, that's the impact of COVID. It's exacerbated a trend that was already underway. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So what do you think is going to happen uh, to Melbourne and Sydney over the coming few years? Because here is my view on it, and I'm interested to understand your view on it. My view on it is this. So because they had such strong price growth between, you know, broadly 2012 and 20, 2018, in that period, they had such strong price growth then. And yes, we've had a bit of a correction, but essentially they had their growth priced in for the next little bit, in my opinion. Then there's the other piece that, that international migration typically pours into those two centers. So a lot of people think that the exodus out of the cities is a new thing because they're just finally seeing people leaving, but they're not seeing the people coming in. So that's why vacancy rates are going up. The way I like to think about Sydney and Melbourne specifically is they're kind of like people reservoirs where international migration are, are get, get poured in and they fill up these reservoirs of people. And that's why it's so busy and the vacancy and then you get all this kind of growth and all this kind of stuff. And then, but at the same time, it's a leaky reservoir and people are always leaking out. And now we've got a situation where we're not topping up the top of the reservoir and we've got people trickling out the bottom, which is why vacancy rates are a little higher and all of that kind of stuff. So how do you see, how do you see these trends? And well, actually, what do you think of my viewpoint for a start? And how do you see these, these, this affecting the, those capitals over the, over the medium term? Uh, what you say is true. Um, now, Sydney has been losing population to other parts of Australia for many years, mm. um, you know, certainly for the last four or five years. And as you say, what's been keeping their population growth strong is overseas migrants. But they have actually been leaking population to other parts of Australia um, for a number of years. Now that they don't have overseas migrants coming in, it's now starting to become quite graphic. Melbourne has been getting a lot of growth from overseas migrants, um, hasn't been leaking to other parts of Australia as much as Sydney, but it's, that's starting to happen in, in quite large numbers now. Um, it was a, a trickle before COVID and now it's turned into, as I said, a, something like a stampede. So that's now exposing the two biggest cities um, and it's going to be interesting to see how they adapt to that. The, the reasons why uh, we have... You know, the latest vacancy figures from SQM Research came out this week and it showed that in um, Sydney and Melbourne, they're very high. The rest of all the other capital cities and rest of um, regional Australia, ultra, ultra, ultra low yeah. to the point where we're putting out a press release this week saying we have a, an absolute national rental crisis in this country. People desperate for places because they need somewhere to live can't get anything. Um, there's so much comp competition for everything that becomes available. Whereas in the two bigger cities, um, I think Melbourne's vacancy rate is 4.4 and Sydney's 3.8, according to those numbers. Um, and that's a consequence of the trend we're talking about. Those two bigger cities have been losing population to the, the drift to more affordable places, to the affordable lifestyle, and they haven't been topped up by the overseas migrants because of the COVID situation. Mm. Yeah, 100%. And it's really fascinating because I was actually looking at those numbers um, this week as well. And when you, when, you take, when you take the rest of Australia and then you look at the, how much the vacancy rate has dropped in the rest of Australia, excluding Sydney and Melbourne, between um, October 2019 and October 2020, it's been a reduction of about 48% in, in, the, in the vacancy rate. So from, I, I'm, I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but from like 1.98 down to 9.9%. Down to so it's, it's fractional, you know, across the country we're below 1%. Now, it was, only, it was only last year or a couple of years ago that it was national news that Hobart was at 1% vacancy rate. And, and it was, we were, everyone was talking about a rental crisis then when it was 1% which is true. 1% is typically indicates that it's crisis levels uh, of, uh, of rental accessibility. At the moment, we're buying properties in locations where the vacancy rate is 0.2% or 0.1%. It's insane. From, a, from an investor's perspective, it's great. But from a, from a humanist perspective, you know, there's a bit of an issue there. Oh, it's more than a bit of an issue, Goose. It's an absolute crisis. That's what we're calling it. And the media material we're putting out this week it's a national rental crisis because I personally know people who are in the midst of this crisis and the situation for many people is what are they going to do 
um, you know, they've got to be out of where they're currently living for various reasons in a matter of weeks, and they cannot find anywhere to go. There is nowhere, or if something becomes available, they're one of 30, 40, or 50 people lining up in a queue competing for it, and who offers the biggest rent usually gets the gig. And um, there's a limit to how much people can afford to pay, so a lot of people are just missing out, and it's, it's quite serious for um, ordinary Australians. It's, it's a great situation for investors, um, and it's an opportunity that I think investors um, need to be aware of because investors are still largely sitting on the sidelines. As markets are being driven primarily by owner-occupiers, including first-home buyers. There's an opportunity investors are miss- missing, and I, and I don't mean to exploit this dire situation, but certainly you'll, you'll be putting yourself as an investor in a strong position uh, buying or building a home in some of these regional centres, and particularly where vacancy rates are less than half of 1%, uh, but you'll also be doing something for the community. Yeah, okay. So because it's an interesting one, right? When vacancy rates are that low, I mean, we can, we can all sort of say, okay, well, a portion of those people are leaving Sydney and Melbourne, but it can't be all of them, right? When, when, when you look across the country and you see the vacancy rates are that low, that says a couple of things. It says there's not enough houses on the market. So why is it then that we're not making that many more people, right? You know, the, the population growth without international migration is not, you know, we're not making that many babies that fast and they're not going all suddenly, you know, being born and then going out to rent properties. So, 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 why, so why is it that vacancy rates continue to plummet and, and how do we, like, is the solution that we just need to build heaps more houses? You know, because I know, I know that, that prior to COVID, there was roughly about a 450,000 house deficit. You know, that, yeah. was, that was roughly, you know, there was roughly four, a, a deficit, not enough, not enough houses by about 450,000, which is, that's a lot of people. So, yeah. you know, how do we, how do we is, it, is it purely just that coming to the fore? Is, what's the solution that we need to build more houses much faster or what do you think the solution to that is? Or do you think that it's, uh, it's an equilibrium that's going to come into balance once things return to a degree of normality? Look, it's not going to be solved easily or quickly because you know there's three main reasons why we have this dire shortage and such low vacancies in most parts of the country. Firstly, if you look at a graph of the, um, the, the creation of new dwellings in Australia, it peaked in about 2017 a couple of very strong years of housing construction, but it's dropped off really sharply since then. So in the last three years, we have not been building anywhere near enough new dwellings, uh, houses or apartments. That's uh, across Australia. The second one is investors have been largely out of the market for the last couple of years. Um, rent, rental supply is primarily a product of investor activity, and investors have... Um, been sitting on the sidelines for a couple of years and most of the buyers have been owner-occupied. So every time an investor sells their property to an owner-occupier, the rental pool drops. And that's what we've been seeing for the last couple of years. And so vacancies have dropped quite quickly. But 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 but, but, but sorry to cut you off, but inversely, right, let's just say there was a thousand people who wanted to rent a house and a thousand houses to rent. And then one house gets sold to one of those renters. Yes, the rental pool of houses gets reduced by one, but also the the rental demand gets reduced by a factor of one as well. So surely those two things just interchange, you know, if it gets sold. Uh, And that's why property prices go up, right? Investors aren't selling to renters. They're selling to other owner-occupiers. So You can't live in in four houses, though. No, but... What we're talking about, the, the third reason is people leaving the big cities and going to smaller cities and regional areas. So vacancy rates have risen in the bigger cities and they've dropped elsewhere. So all of those three factors combined have produced a situation. But what we're getting is an owner-occupier leaves Sydney, they move to Orange, they might buy their property from an investor. So um, the rental pool drops. And right. that's that's been... In simple terms, what's happening, plus we're not building very many new dwellings. So three factors, you put them all together, we're seeing vacancies drop, drop, drop everywhere except Sydney and Melbourne primarily. And so now we've got this huge shortage. And this is what you're talking about with the exodus to affordable lifestyle, right? Yeah. That's right. Okay, so okay, so what we've established so far is that is that regional centres, the right regional centres, not just any regional, not not tiny country town, the right regional centres have a tendency 
to outperform the Capitals on an average basis. Again, we're not generalizing here. And what we're seeing is that more and more people are trying to move to these these regional centers because they're typically more affordable and they can have a different they can have a different and ostensibly better lifestyle, which is in turn dropping the vacancy rates, uh, making a much tighter market, and all of that kind of stuff, which actually is in turn driving the prices up, and that's what we're seeing as well. So how can how can like what's what are the other factors that are playing into this? Because it's not just go and buy a cheap house somewhere. It's not just affordability. Because you can find a cheap house in a country town somewhere and go, it's affordable, and somebody would like that lifestyle. So what are the other factors that are driving um, the market at the moment? Because I know that it was a, there was there's a lot of new government spending on infrastructure and things like that. So how can we start to think about where we're most likely to see the the benefits of of this kind of stuff? Yeah, well, um, yeah, firstly, the big trend, exodus to affordable lifestyle. There's two important words there, affordable and lifestyle. So they're not just moving somewhere cheap, they're moving somewhere um, affordable that also offers the lifestyle they want, which includes good infrastructure, good medical services, etc. So we're talking about Ballarat, Bendigo, Orange, Newcastle, the Sunshine Coast, um, substantial regional centres that offer a lot in terms of amenity, infrastructure and lifestyle, at an affordable price compared to the big cities. So that's the big trend that's driving a lot of markets around the country. The one that's coming, and it's going to be huge, is the infrastructure one. Mm. Um, and it's very clear that federal and state governments intend that Australia is going to have an infrastructure-led economic recovery, that they're bringing forward everything they can, anything that's close to shovel-ready um, is being fast-tracked and all governments have shown a willingness to go into debt, to borrow money to do it, short term at least. And so we're going to have more infrastructure spending, more big projects happening around Australia probably than ever before. And that's significant for residential property because we believe that nothing pumps up residential property markets more than that factor. Infrastructure spending big time creates economic activity, it generates jobs, from that comes demand for real estate, but it also improves the amenity of a place. If you build a new rail link to somewhere, it becomes more desirable. So there's lots of impacts for residential property, um, and we're going to start to be feeling those impacts uh, from this point forward, certainly right throughout next year and beyond. So putting all those things together, that's why I'm very confident in predicting uh, a national property boom in Australia. I think it's already underway, in fact, I, in most places. I, I'm certain it's already underway. And, and I'll tell you anecdotally, so one of the things that we look for, one of the many things that we look for when we're um, selecting locations is we want to see um, yields typically uh, typically above 6%, you know, not, not, not way above 6%, but typically hovering just above 6%. And, uh, and we want to have seen, you know, rents rising, um, you know, in line with um, median house prices and stuff. So we can kind of see that, de- that demand um, billowing up. However, I, I was doing a recent analysis on a, a bunch of different suburbs and all of these places, which normally, normally would have been quite high yielding suburbs, you know, or, or towns or re- regional centers, you know, sixes and sevens and, and all of this kind of stuff would sort of be what I was expecting. But I hadn't looked at them in a while. I went back to revisit them and I found that the median uh, yields were down at around 5%. Now, that's not because the rents have dropped. That's because the prices have gone up. Yeah. And, and, and I found that in a startling amount of suburbs that I was reviewing to, to look at where we can invest. And the part of the reason I was reviewing all of these suburbs is because even our best locations right now, they're so hard to buy in. You know, it's, 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 it's insanely difficult to get good properties right now because demand is up supply is down, you know, people are moving. And so I think if you can start to triangulate these these ideas of affordability, lifestyle and infrastructure and go, okay, well, where's the infrastructure going? Is it somewhere that that I or somebody else would actually want to live? Does it have good supporting um, uh, facilities and all of that kind of stuff? You know, that you can start to really pin this down. But even so, even in doing that and even in triangulating these ideas and going, okay, well, if I use that like a bit of a, a lens and try and pin down those kind of locations, we're already seeing the prices go up and the yields go down. Yeah, yeah you're right. You're absolutely right. So now where you might have been um, 
finding it quite easy to find six or six and a half percent in some of these places. Yeah. Now five and five and a half is perhaps more the metric. And fortunately, the balancing factor there is that interest rates have kept coming down. So you know, 5% is still pretty good if you're borrowing at less than 2%. Um, so you can still make your numbers work pretty well as an investor in those circumstances. But the other thing it brings into focus for me, and this, this sort of opens up a whole other subject, but I'll touch on it briefly, and that is that I think investors increasingly are or should be looking for properties that allow them to value add. It's not just passive investment anymore. Yeah. It's not buying something, put in a tenant and get you 5 or 6%. It's get that on a property where you can build a second dwelling on that property or subdivide or at least a granny flat or maybe renovate. But you're really um, looking for a value-adding proposition that can help you to accelerate the wealth creation process as well as your rental return and your capital growth. Yeah, totally. And that's that, as you know, that's what we call the holy trinity. That's our that's our core principle. Find we start with finding the good locations for growth, which is half the reason that, that you and I talk all the time, which is great. We start by finding the good locations for growth. Then we seek out how do we get something that's got decent yields straight out of the gate. So you can buy it and it's a six percent or something like that. And then also have have a value adding strategy, so subdivision, granny flat, or any of those kind of factors. But here's the thing: here's another really interesting thing. One of the key value add strategies that we've always looked for is buying under market value. You know, we've we've always been very good at put, positioning ourselves in the market before other investors and before demand, so we have the opportunity to navigate, find properties that are ostensibly under market value, which is why we've had such a great track record of getting solid growth. Yeah. I can tell you that that is, that, is almost, that is almost an impossibility right now. And I'm talking, we're looking in five different states right now. It is so difficult to use that as a metric, which, which inversely means that you have to be even more bullish about finding uh, properties that have got a manufactured upside rather than just a purchased upside. So yeah. buy something you can subdivide or something. Okay. So here's an idea because yeah. I, I know what you say is true. Um, you know, the places that we've got in our reports, um, we always try to put locations in our reports before they become hot. But a lot of places have become very hot very quickly yeah. um, lately. And so, as you say, you're going there as a buyer's agent and it's so competitive and, and properties are selling really fast. So what we're increasingly on the outlook for is locations that are, we think are going to do that, but they haven't done it yet. And those are the ones we want to talk about. So can I give you an example of that right now? Yeah, go for it. All right, a place that really stands out for me that's going to become a boom city, but it hasn't really done it yet is Toowoomba in Queensland. And I'm I'm sure you're aware of it and you've probably thought about it and looked at it. Yeah. Um, we've, we've just published a new report which is based on this infrastructure boom because we think it's so influential, a national top 10, and we've included Toowoomba. Now, five or six years ago, it was in some of our reports, had a good run, then developers jumped in and oversupplied it and vacancies were high. But right now, vacancies are, yeah, it's one of those places where it's like 0.2%. Um, but there's a massive infrastructure spend happening more to come. I think this is a market that's really going to perform, but it's very well priced at the moment because it hasn't done much for a few years and it's not a hot market yet, but I think it will be. I, I would probably, I'd, I, I don't know. I, I would say it's already quite competitive there and, I, and that's actually one of the locations where I've already seen the uh, median yields drop below 6%. Because yeah, that was actually one of the ones that I was looking at a while ago and I've gone back to look at now and I'm like, hang on a second, this is a very different market than it was once then. You touched on a really interesting um, point there though about you once saw it as a good location and then the developers went in and oversupplied it. So one of the things that, that I always like to think about because that's a risk that's a risk that could happen in any location you ever choose yeah the way to combat that in my opinion is to position yourself where there's um constrained constrained land right so don't put yourself on the edge of the town put yourself as close as you can towards the center make sure you surround make sure you're not on the fringes because when you're on the fringes that's when you're going to be positioning yourself in an environment where you know if a sudden bunch of supply comes on near you which is more likely to that can have more of an impact on your specific yeah. property price I think you're right about that. And also, when you're looking for those opportunities when you can value add, and one of the best ones is you can actually build a second dwelling or subdivide, 
um, you're not going to get those opportunity on the fringes because the fringes are where the new estates are and the blocks are all 300 square metres. You want to buy the more established property in the older suburbs where maybe you can get a house on 1,000 square metres still. Mm. And you can do that in places like Toowoomba and you can do that in Albury, Wodonga and Bendigo. Um, very highly sought after, of course, these days, and they're hard to get, but they do exist. But it's those older, more established suburbs that are going to provide you with those value-adding opportunities, not the the new ones on the fringes. Yeah. you know, you, you, Another thing you touched on a moment ago, you like to try and um, pick the spots before they're the spots, you know, the hot spots before they're the hot spots. Here's the thing, though. I, I, you know, we do a lot of independent analysis and, and you know, we, we definitely look at, um, we definitely love the hotspotting reports and they inform a portion of, of our viewpoint on, on what's happening in the marketplace. But we've had a pretty good track record of positioning ourselves in these markets before they start to move. I just want to say it's pretty scary because when, you, when you're going into those markets and you're going, okay, Things haven't been great here. For example, you could, you know, maybe Townsville is a good example. You know, we actually bought in Townsville last year. And uh, and at that point in time, it's like, I can see that this is about to about to move. I can see that this is going to go well, but because it hasn't and because it's been a little volatile and because the previous five years maybe indicate that it's not great. And we've seen the same thing in some of the locations in the Perth market that we're buying in. You Sometimes you're standing there on the front edge of the of the frontier going oof this is this is a little scary yeah it, it is scary it takes courage but if you if you understand enough about how markets work and you've done the research you've got a fairly high degree of confidence that you're going to be proven right um, and the reality is that most investors as we've discussed before are herd animals they follow the herd no one gets yeah no one's ever got rich following the herd people do get rich leading the herd or actually running in the opposite direction to the herd. So to be successful, you really do have to take that leap of faith and get there in front of the pack. Totally. But but if you've educated yourself and you've done the research, your chances of success are pretty high. And um, I, you, you mentioned you, you'd bought in Townsville 12 months ago. It wasn't booming then, but there was an article that came through in our daily research today from Townsville Bulletin um, with information showing just how hot that market is now. So if you bought 12 12 months ago, um, you're going to have happy investors because they'll – yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the average the average price increases um, have been about between nine and nine and fifteen percent. That's what yeah. we've that's what we've seen since we bought yeah. in like May last year. And, and there's more to come because you just got to look at the infrastructure that's it's on the books that's under construction or coming up. It doesn't all have to happen, and never there's never a situation when it all does happen. But if half of it does, Townsville's got a boom on its hand, and we're starting to see that it's going to do something very similar to what the Sunshine Coast has done and is doing. And um, it's because of those experiences and what we know to be true, um, what drives real estate markets who are quite confident about um, places like Toowoomba are going to do something similar as well. I mean, it's starting to heat up, but it's not nearly as hot as, say, a, a Bendigo or an Albury Wodonga is at the moment. Yeah, totally. We were, we were buying in Albury Wodonga uh, earlier in 2020 and we had to stop buying there. So, because again, yeah. one, of, one of our metrics is when, it, when we start to get to multi-offers on properties, that's a key indicator for us to start uh, exiting the location and just let the, let the growth happen, which is great. One of the other things, again, I was doing a lot of research in the last couple of weeks, just reassessing our locations going into December. And um, one, I will talk broadly about it. Anyone who's listening to this episode, God, you're getting a lot of, you're getting all the gold. You're getting to understand actually where the suburbs are that we're talking about. It's none of this uh, hidden behind hyperbole. So I was looking at Rockhampton, which I think has uh, a lot of potential. But again, being on the frontier of that decision can sometimes be a little daunting. Now, Rockhampton has got a lot of infrastructure going on, vacancy rates plummeted, demand is going up. All of these, all of the, there's a lot of stuff that we're looking at, and it looks like a good prospect. However, it also, as I say, when you stand on the front edge of, of the frontier, it can look a little daunting, particularly when you look at the historical data and you notice that it's that it has been a little wavy. And when I say a little wavy, you know, go through phases where vacancy rates go up and vacancy rates go down and vacancy rates go. So, so that tells me it's a little volatile as well historically. So yeah. some of these markets, which may be great and maybe on the precipice of a bunch of growth, 
may also be be quite volatile. What's your view on that? And do you think that there's a there's a position where you need to think about trading, as in like get in, get get the growth, and when it when the going's good, sell it and move on? Or do you do? You, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I think a place like Rock Hampton, you know, as you say, it's a little bit volatile because it's it doesn't have the diversity to its economy that, say, a Sunshine Coast now has or a Bendigo or an Orange or a Newcastle has. Um, it, it does tend to rise and fall because of its links to the resources sector while also having, um, you know, it's, it's very big in the cattle industry that calls itself the cattle capital of Australia. Uh, it's got some tourism. Uh, agriculture around it, um, but you know it's it's volatile because of its links to the resources sector, which is rising at the moment. So it's it's starting to rise as well. Look, I think a place like Rockhampton is good to have in the context of a bigger portfolio. You wouldn't recommend it to somebody starting out as their first and only investment property, uh, but if you already own a few um, and you're aware of the volatility of it. You might include it in a portfolio um, and be prepared to to accept the risk that's involved, or maybe yes, buy at the right time and sell at the right time. Whereas mostly would advocate to people that you buy good assets and you keep them um, long term because that's how uh, that's the best way to to grow your wealth through property investment. Okay, so so you're basically saying if you're going to buy, well, I'm, I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. In that case, then why would you buy in an area that, that is volatile? If if the idea is buy and hold, because that's where the real wealth is made, and I agree with that. Um, why would you buy in an area that is volatile if you know it's going to go up and down like a yo-yo? And why wouldn't you just say, look, I'll just put my money somewhere else? Yeah, well, that's that's true. I mean, you always need to ask yourself. I always say to people, ask yourself this question: if you if you're really hot on buying in a particular location, ask yourself, is this the absolute best place in Australia I can buy right now? Mm. The absolute best. If you can't say with confidence that yes, we'll keep looking, but you might buy in a place like Rockhampton because it is incredibly cheap. The the rental yields are very good and it's rising, so it's an opportunity time to buy there. You know you're going to get some growth at least short term. You're going to get good rental yield. You haven't spent a lot of money. It might stop growing because it is a little bit volatile, but you're going to be okay with it. Um, or you might take the strategy. Now's a great time to buy there, and maybe in two years I'll sell, having made you know uh, maybe twenty percent capital growth and had a good rental return in the process. Or because it's an old established city, you might take the view of buy an affordable property on a thousand square meter block of land that I can build a second dwelling on and create some wealth that way. And so the volatility that's in that market becomes less relevant in those circumstances as long as you get your entry timing right. Yeah, totally. And that's kind of one of the one of the reasons I like to think about what, what's the value add strategy. It's not so much because I think everyone should aspire to be a small developer, but it's what's it's what's your safety net. You know, like if you buy something you can manufacture your own you know, capital or cash flow, then you're less reliant on what the market conditions say at the end of the day. So, all right, we've covered a lot of ground, Terry. So let's 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 look at this. How can people? We've covered infrastructure, affordability, lifestyle, regionals versus capitals, all of that kind of stuff. We, we've covered. I mean, we haven't even talked about the budget, really. Did you have anything you want to talk about the budget? Well, the thing with the budget is the infrastructure spend. That's the most relevant uh, direct impact or indirect probably impact on residential property what about, markets. What, what, what about, sorry to jump in there. What about the, what about QE? What about a hundred billion dollars of quantitative easing? What about, what about taking, what is that? A hundred billion divided by 23 million. So what's that, you know, whatever that, I can't even do the maths, but if that works out to be on a per capita basis, what about that getting pumped into the system from, yeah. uh, from a, an indirect flow of money perspective, I think there's a, quite a few things in there that are really pushing oh. the market. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is about stimulus, and there's a lot of that in the federal budget. And I think um, the economists, when they, they you know, attention-seeking, chattering economists, they always like to point to some impending doom that will get their names in the paper or get them in front of some television cameras. Uh, the, there was the September cliff, which turned out to be a furphy. Now they're talking about a cliff uh, at some other point in the near future. What they're not taking into account is the amount of stimulus that's, that's been pumped into the economy by the Reserve Bank, 
by the federal government and also by state governments and to a certain extent by um, some local councils as well. Um, so you, you add all that up and there's, there's a lot of stimulus uh, creating economic activity and jobs. And, um, you know, the unemployment figures were out yesterday. There was a very slight increase, um, but at 7%, I think it's a pretty good number in the middle of a uh, pandemic-induced recession. So Australia's doing pretty well. I think it's going to do better. Certainly the Reserve Bank is becoming increasingly bullish. And let's face it, um, the governor is is, is not the, the most um, upbeat guy. He pretty much tells it like it is in a very deadpan way. So if he's getting excited, we know that the economy is starting to look quite good. But perhaps more importantly, the the big bank economists who have been so negative, particularly about uh, residential property, are now starting to admit that their forecasts were wrong and they're starting to make some quite bullish forecasts uh, for 2021. Yeah, totally. And it's pretty interesting as well because, you know, there have been a lot of forecasters who have been very negative and now now they're, now they're actually turning quite quite bullish on property. And it's interesting with Philip Lowe, uh, the, the governor of the RBA, he, he actually, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, I know that property prices are going to go up, but I'm not optimizing for property prices. I'm optimizing for unemployment. So just basically let the chips fall that they may. He knows that the property prices are going to go up. The other thing I find uh, quite interesting to combine with all of this, to combine with the exodus to affordable lifestyle, which is a trend that I'm massively seeing on the ground as well, um, infrastructure, um, you know, QE, budget, spending, stimulus, uh, lifestyle drivers, because people suddenly realize they can have the life they want rather than the life they think they're supposed to have and they can do whatever they want. We, we're seeing this move to the regionals. We're seeing more growth in those areas. The, um, the, the thing that we haven't even talked about that I think is even going to pump, pump this up even more is uh, the acting of the lending laws, you know, the acting of the responsible lending laws. So all of a sudden, you're going to have all of these factors plus interest rate cuts plus banks now turning to a position where they're openly saying they're bullish on property and at the same time as they're saying, oh, actually, no, no, we are bullish on, real, on residential real estate again. Oh, and by the way, we don't have to responsibly lend anymore. Everyone just start having money. Surely, surely... Surely this is like adding fuel to a bonfire already. I think you're right. I mean, all the ducks, as they say, are falling into alignment for the the property boom that we're forecasting, but which we're also observing is in many parts of Australia is already happening, but it's just going to become stronger and more widespread. And all of those things are factors, the stimulus spending in the various state and federal budgets, the, uh, the access to easier money, the, the cut, and interest rates, the big infrastructure spend, that big trend to affordable lifestyle, all of those things happening at once. I mean, uh, wow. What, what, yeah, powerful forces um, pointing all in one direction. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, we can be dismissed by some as, yeah, we've, we're talking up the market. I don't actually have any vested interest in doing that. Um, we just observe what's happening and we tell people about it and we write our reports um, just telling it the way we see it. And what we see is, um, um, yeah, a yeah, property I, boom. Sorry, it's quite funny because a lot of people would think that I've got a vested interest in wanting to pump up the market. But the reality is if the market's going good everywhere, everyone can just go and you know, buy their own properties and win, right? So there's, so there's an inverse thing there where if the going's good, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, it's more challenging for me even as a, as a professional. But the reality well, is... I like to think about what is actually happening and try and try and talk about that because I figure if we can have a consistent narrative of reality, that's where we're going to have a lot more credibility. And, in the and I think you as a, a buyer's agent would prefer if the market was a little less hot um, because totally. it's, it's, it's really hard for you to do your job in circumstances when there's so much competition from other buyers and things are selling, selling so fast. I mean, you want to buy carefully for your clients. You want to do your due diligence. Yeah. And that's that's difficult in, in this environment. So I mean your vested interest is in a nice steady market that's that's not as hot as it is in so many places. Yeah, it's exactly. It's, it's about strategically positioning yourself in the right place to, to, to get the most benefit for your clients. That's the goal. But you know, when the markets are when 
when when the markets are 0.2% vacancy rates and stuff like that, it's pretty hard. It's pretty competitive, which is fun. It actually makes it quite fun, I think. So, all right, let's take a little look forward. Let's take a little look forward at 2021 before we wrap it up. So with all of this kind of stuff happening, what is your view on, and you've sort of touched on it a little bit, what is your view broadly on 2021, economy, property, all of that kind of stuff? And what do you think people should do now to start to, well, Firstly, express your opinion. I think I know what it's going to be, but, what, but then also what can people do to start to get themselves ready to benefit? Yeah, well, 2021 is going to be a strong year in residential property. 2020 has surprised a lot of people, particularly economists and journalists, and how well it's performed. Um, the thing I'm t- saying to people, my in one sentence, the consequence of 2020 is that it's the best possible advertisement for residential property as an asset class. It has refused to buckle. In fact, it's done quite the opposite. It's risen amid these rather trying circumstances. Against that background, we're going to have a very strong 2021 and investors really need to be doing some work right now before 2021 to get ready, Um, doing your research, getting your your finances sorted out, um, going and talking to your mortgage broker. Um, But Action is in good advice. It's really important. Be prepared to put in the time and maybe some money to get on, to create a team. You've got to build your team before you build your portfolio. So get a a good mortgage broker, a good buyer's agent, a good property advisor, an accountant that understands real estate, all of that. Get those things all in place and be ready to move um, because you're going to have to move with some speed. Otherwise, you're going to miss out, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think it's I think it's really um, more than ever. You need to have all your ducks in a row. You need to be ready to take action. You can't be all right. I'll start looking, and then I'll think about it. Get finance sorted. Get everything sorted. Get yourself totally ready and in the starting blocks because you know the markets are moving relatively quickly, and I think you need to be ready to take action and seize the opportunities when when they when they rise. And I agree with you. I think that I think we're going into a, a massive upswing, particularly in parts of the country that are not Sydney and Melbourne. Is my view. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mentioned earlier in, in our discussion that we'd published a couple of new reports um, because they are so online with the trends that we're seeing. The first one is our national top 10 for the exodus to affordable lifestyle. The second one was our national top 10 for uh, infrastructure spending and markets are going to benefit from that. And I was just interested to have a look. What Are there any locations that make both those reports? Because they've got to be powerful markets to be in. And actually, there's two. Uh, no surprises that Sunshine Coast is one of them, and uh, that's not news to most people who've been paying attention. And the other one is the Hunter region in New South Wales. Mm. So those two places, both regional areas, both made both those top ten reports. Um, so they're places that people should have on their radar screens. But yeah, they're, they're strong markets. So you do need to have, as you say, goose. You've got to have all your ducks and alignment you've got to have everything sorted and be ready to move because if you muck around you'll miss out yep absolutely and on that note terry it's been a pleasure as always appreciate your insight and i'm certain a lot of people have got got a lot of value out out of this and of course if anyone wants to check out any of those reports that terry does and they're great they are great and i do encourage people to to do research hey of course you know we can help people if you if you want some help to to go and find and acquire the right properties but if you do want to dig into a bit of research on your own just head to hotspotting.com.au check out the reports that terry produces they are great terry any final words before we wrap it up i just want to reiterate the importance of um what i said just a, a moment ago build your team before you build your portfolio, get busy with that now and um, give give Goose a call. Um, he's a good person to have on your team. You really do need that kind of professional assistance if you're going to succeed in this environment. Awesome. Well, thanks for the endorsement, Terry. I really appreciate that. Cool. All right, guys, if you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe, share this with a friend, family member or loved one. And of course, just head to theinvestorlab.com.au if you want access to free resources, tools, guides and the ability to get in contact with us to help you as well. So until then, see you on the next episode.